We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. And the U.S. Open is on in New York City, and vaccinated fans are welcomed back in the stands. And this year, the U.S. Tennis Association launched a new mental health initiative for players, offering licensed mental health providers and quiet rooms, among other services. The initiative also aims to combat the stigma surrounding mental health. It follows tennis star Naomi Osaka's withdrawal from the French Open earlier this year, where she revealed struggles with her mental health and sparked a flurry of media conversations about what's appropriate to expect in demand of athletes. Here with me to talk about what it means for sports governing bodies to meaningfully address athletes' mental health concerns is Elsie Granderson, columnist for the Los Angeles Times, ABC contributor and host of the podcast Living Out Loud with Elsie Granderson. Hey, Elsie. Hey there. How are you? <laughs> Good. How are you doing? And uh, we also have Dr. Ashley Zapata. She's a sports psychologist with an MA in, in psych degree in clinical psychology. She's also co-coordinator of the Diversity in Sport SIG for the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. Welcome to Forum, Dr. Ashley Zapata. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Zapata, I'll start with you. What was your reaction when you heard the news of this mental health initiative being rolled out? And does it feel like a meaningful step in addressing some of the issues we heard players raise? Yeah, thank you for asking me that. I was very happy to see this initiative um, come out to the public. I think it's a great first step. I think there's certainly some other things that we can talk through and, and develop as as the months and the years go on. But this is a wonderful first step. It, it showcases that mental health is an important factor in how athletes uh, go through their day-to-day. You know, it's not just about the physical health. It's also about mental health. And so I think that this initiative is a good first step. Yes. Right. Because you said, I've heard you reference, when an athlete has an ACL tear, we understand, right? And yeah. so that should be extended to mental health as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, there'd be no expectation for an athlete with a broken arm to go out on, onto the court and swing a racket. And I think that that same level of understanding should be put towards mental health. And Elsie Granderson, we were talking earlier about Gen Z being a force when it comes to rethinking how we approach work. Do you feel that's part of what's happening in tennis with this next generation and how they're thinking about their job as athletes? I, I believe so. Um, Social media certainly helps, and obviously the younger generations are much more willing and nimble on social media than than other generations. But you know, this conversation in terms of tennis specifically and mental health really came to the fore, like back in 2014, 2015, with the American tennis player Marty Fish. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the great fortune of covering Marty's last matches at the U.S. Open, coincidentally. Uh, but Marty was diagnosed with like an anxiety disorder that he talked about. Um, very openly, and, and and was one of the reasons why he retired from tennis, actually, because he did not have the proper support in order to continue his career while also safeguarding his own mental health. And so I think, you know, the conversation began in earnest 
with Marty Fish and certainly with Naomi Osaka and many other uh, younger athletes today, the conversation has now gone into hyperdrive. Yeah, and what do you think um, was, I guess, prevented... I mean, we're seeing this. This is a first ever initiative that's happening at the U.S. Open. Why don't you think there was a response um, back then um, with Marty Fish? Dr. Zapata, do you have any insights in terms of kind of how the industry of sports psychology um, was looking at mental health issues um, back in 2014, for example? Well, I I think that the field of sports psychology is still relatively new um, comparatively when we look at some other fields of psychology. And I think there still wasn't quite an understanding um, or maybe a, an openness or a willingness to understand that mental health for student, for uh, athletes, sorry, I work so much with student athletes, with athletes um, extends so much more outside of performance. I think there's a, there's, there's been an openness for coaching and performance psychology. And I think we're in a really cool time right now, generationally to really be open to uh, anxiety, depression, other mental health concerns that will also impact performance rather than only focusing on mental skills and performance. Well, I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation quickly um, since we have such a short time for this segment. Are you a tennis fan or someone who followed Naomi Osaka's story in the media this year? What are your thoughts on the USTA's new mental health initiative? And how would you like to see athletes' mental health supported? And just what are your thoughts overall on what feels kind of like a new era of tennis right now? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. And LZ, did I hear you wanting to jump in with a comment yeah. as well? Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, it would be remiss for us to have this conversation about mental health and sports and not talk about sexism, misogyny, mm. and how toxic masculinity factors into that as well. You know, while it is true, Naomi Osaka has been the voice uh, for for tennis in terms of this conversation, there have been many conversations about mental health from male-dominated sports in the past, and those voices were usually laughed at and mocked. You know, I think about Ricky Williams, the great running back from Texas, and when he was drafted, and as he began talking about his own mental health issues uh, way back, you know, I want to say like this was 20 years ago now, um, he was basically mocked and laughed at and told to man up. And that has really sort of been the approach, I think, for a lot of male athletes in particular when it comes to mental health, is that it's seen as a weakness and not just another aspect of overall health. Dr. Zapata, do you have any um, reflections on that comment as well? Absolutely. I'm glad that was brought up. I I think we're seeing a significant shift at this time where people are open to mental health services in a way that's certainly not as stigmatized as it was in the past. But I, I do feel as though there's this concept of weakness that's, that's been associated with seeking support, particularly mental health support. Um, and we really have to shift that narrative. And it, it needs to become a, a strength, an area of strength that you're seeking this support. And so this initiative, um, one of many that I hope to come, um, I think supports that idea that, hey, the same way we would support you getting uh, preemptive medical care is the same way we want to support you in the mental health arena as well. And there hasn't been a lot of information or details yet on what these mental health resources have actually looked like on the grounds. You know, they've mentioned the quiet rooms and having um, licensed counselors. 
um, on staff there. Um, but Dr. Zapata, for an initiative like this, what would you hope was taken into consideration and would make this feel like a solid offering in your professional opinion? Thank you. I think one of the major things is uh, accessibility and, and cultural consideration. Uh, it's great to say that your that your athletes will have access to licensed mental health providers, but are we ensuring that there will be a variety of different identifying factors um, for those athletes to choose between providers? Uh, prime example, athletes of color, will they have access to licensed mental health providers of color? Um, will there be um, options in terms of gender or non-binary identifying providers? I think these are also very important because it, it signifies that we want to take the time to ensure that you're creating the right fit with your provider, and I think that's important. And as far as quiet rooms and, and other um, considerations, I think there needs to be an accountability uh, piece to that, too, is that quiet room going to be in the basement with cinder block walls or is that room going to going to be a comfortable therapeutic space? Yes, interesting things to consider. And again, just reminding, we don't know exactly what's going on, but it's nice to hear just your thoughts on on what would be good to consider for this kind of offering. And um, I want to get both of your opinions on, on this question. So, you know, tennis legend Billie Jean King is famous for her quote, pressure is a privilege. It's actually on a plaque in, you know, Arthur Ashe Stadium at the at the U.S. Open grounds, and the idea that it's a privilege to be so great that you have the weight of expectation on your shoulders. And yes, that is a privilege, but pressure is also pressure. Um, so, Dr. Zapata, I wanted to get your take on helping us better understand what the pressure to perform match after match, tournament after tournament can feel like for a top athlete, especially in a sport like tennis. And then, LZ, I just want to get your take on that as well. I think the first thing I want to point out is that in a sport like tennis, there's so much scrutiny. There's so many eyes on your individual performance. You don't have the luxury of leaning on a pack of teammates out on the field. It's, it's just you that's being watched in this moment. And I think that alone creates pressure. Um, then you look at the athletes who have uh, consistent successes. Now there's added pressure to continue that, continue that level of consistency. Um, and I think one of the drawbacks there is something that we call conditions of worth. If an athlete continues to identify their, their self-value, their worth with their level of success, then the moment they start to have some difficulties, now that's going to negatively impact how they see themselves. And that, we know, can lead to um, significant episodes of depression, anxiety, and other mental health uh, concerns. And Elsie Granderson, what's your, your take on that? And, and maybe a potential kind of rethinking of, you know, the pressure is a privilege um, motto that that a lot of tennis players ascribe to, too. You know, the thing that's interesting, um, and I love that quote, by the way, mm -hmm. um, is that she didn't say that there wasn't a toll to pay for this oh. privilege. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she didn't, Good that point. wasn't part of it, you know, so, so she understands as well as anyone, how, you know, the mental aspect of it. And I've long said that to me, tennis was the most difficult sport, individual sport, on an athlete mentally anyway, because you simply don't know how long you have to be out there to play in order to win. A match could last one hour, a match could last five hours, and you have to stay mentally sharp that entire time in order to come out victorious. That's a mental aspect of the game very few other sports have. But with that being said, um, it, the idea that 
you know, an athlete is using mental health as a way to escape scrutiny or being held accountable, which is some of the criticism Naomi Osaka faced, sort of illuminates how much further we have to go in terms of really understanding the balance between mental health, fitness, physical fitness, and spectacular play. And we accept outbursts from players as part of the game. What we don't do is look at those outbursts and wonder if that's how they're coping with mental fitness, with mental health aspect of the game. Hmm. You know, we look at John McEnroe and we see all the outbursts and we go, oh, he was this, he was that, he was this, he was that. He was also the number one player in the world facing a lot of pressure each and every match to perform. And perhaps that was how he was dealing with it mentally. You know, it's, it's like re rethinking the vocabulary around mental health as well as rethinking the ways that people deal with pressure and with their mental health, I think would go a long way towards understanding the conversation as a whole. Mm. Because we've been seeing athletes deal with pressure in a variety of both healthy and unhealthy ways. But regardless if it's healthy or unhealthy, it's still about mental health. And mm. it's not something that you just point and say, oh, they're crazy, chuckle, 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 and move on. It's like, no they may actually be dealing with something that's diagnosable, treatable, and that's not a healthy way that they're dealing with it by having these outbursts. A healthier way may be actually sitting down with a sports psychologist and working out steps in which they can better manage their emotions. We're talking yeah, about... I agree. Oh. We're talking about the U.S. Open and its first ever mental health initiative for players with Elsie Granderson, columnist for the Los Angeles Times, ABC contributor and host of the podcast Living Out Loud with Elsie Granderson. Also, Dr. Ashley Zapata, sports psychologist and co-coordinator of the Diversity in Sport for the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. You're listening to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. So let's go to a caller, J.J. in San Ramon. J.J., you're on. Hi, thanks for taking my call, and it's great to hear Elsie and Ashley's perspectives on this. I played college sports at Stanford and professionally in Italy, and I understand the pressures that these athletes face. And there's one thing that maybe the general public isn't aware of, and it's at the end of the day, whether you have a great performance or you play poorly um, and the attention is off, you're faced with who likes you for who you are on the inside. So are you surrounded by handlers and hangers on because they want to be in the, you know, glow of your starlight or are they really authentically your friends? And I think you start questioning who you are and who believes in you and who you can trust, especially in the day of social media. So I think that's something a lot of people don't think about. Um, it's a lonely thing. I didn't play professional tennis, but you don't have a coach that you can talk to. You don't have a teammate who can give you a high five and you mm -hmm. add to that the um, obligations and responsibilities of being a professional athlete, the role model appointments that you have, the number of tweets you need to do so that you get your sponsor money. It's crazy. And it's really not going to help sports in general and our society. So I, I feel the the cost benefit analysis has to come down on the side of the athletes. Naomi Osaka has paid a tremendous price to be the spokesperson for this. And I think when she came forward to speak her truth, she probably had no idea of the backlash. And it just breaks my heart. She's a wonderful athlete. Thank you. 
Yeah, thank you, JJ, for you. for those comments. And and yeah, and it does just make me think back to the original handling of Naomi Osaka's, you know, transparency and vulnerability in the news. First, just kind of making it this like, oh, like, you know, you make tons of money and you're supposed to be there for us. And just kind of the media um, thinking, taking it personally, essentially. And then also just seeing now that she's back in in the mix of things and she's doing press, seeing how reflective she's been um, and and how she's modeling and, and saying, you know, oh, maybe I could have done something different. It's really interesting to see that when I also don't feel like um, the media at large, I mean, there's, it's it hasn't all been bad coverage, but the media at large isn't having that kind of same self-reflection of like, oh, like, what is our role in this? And mm-hmm. um, Elsie Granderson, you know, as someone who works in media and is familiar with the sports media <laughs> world, I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts on on kind of how this relationship is maybe going to be going forward. I mean, obviously, this is the start of hopefully the start of a conversation of trying to figure out kind of something that works for both parties, right? Yeah, you know, it, it is interesting because... You know, there are a lot of us within the industry, within my industry, who are jerks, and you know we make a living by being antagonistic, by being contrarians, uh, by poking fun, um, and it takes a toll when that sort of you know approach to covering sports uh, is multiplied. And these athletes sometimes they're coming off a court or a field after suffering the worst loss or defeat of their careers having to face some of these individuals who aren't there to necessarily, you know, get the athlete's perspective in terms of what happened or how they feel about what happened, they're actually there being jerks because that's just sort of their brand. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm just being honest. I've been in this industry for a long time. I've been in those rooms. I've heard some of those questions and you're like going, what's the point of this question at this right. particular moment? Yeah. Um, that's part of our responsibility to do some safeguarding. And I think we have been self-policing a lot more. Um, I've been in spaces now where some of those questions have been asked and the, the journalists themselves are groaning and the athletes are more empowered to say, that's, you know, I'm not answering that question or what is the point of confronting uh, the journalists for making those remarks. And I think it, it is necessary because there is a part of our business that forgets too that these women and men are human beings and just because it's your job to hold them accountable for what they did on the field or on the court doesn't mean that you have a license to be a mean-spirited individual to antagonize them right Elsie Granderson, columnist for the Los Angeles Times, ABC contributor and host of the podcast Living Out Loud with Elsie Granderson. Elsie, thank you for joining us for both this and our last segment on The Great Resignation. Thank you very much for having me anytime. And thanks to Dr. Ashley Zapata, sports psychologist and co-coordinator of diversity and sport for the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.